Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions of pubic hair, medical procedures, and some sex. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, what do we even know about pubic hair? I was having a conversation with a friend recently, and the topic of sex came up, as it often does as a sex educator and a person who hosts a podcast about sex. We began to talk about pubic hair and where the current trend towards removing it came from. I said with great confidence that the trend definitely comes from porn. They did it in porn to make it easier to see vulvas, and then it just caught on from there. After that conversation, I found myself wondering if there was any actual evidence for that. Where did that come from? I also started thinking about other pubic hair-related info that I had heard over the years. Like, does pubic hair serve a protective factor? Does removing your pubic hair increase your risk for STIs or other problems? What about crabs, aka pubic lice? Are they really on the decline because of pubic hair removal? Pubic hair, or the lack thereof, is a hot topic, and I clearly didn't know much about it. On this episode, I'm going to take you with me as I explore the world of pubes. I'll cover origins of the Brazilian wax, pubic hair through the ages, and how pubic deforestation affects pubic lice. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first... It's my birthday week, which means it has been one year since I released the trailer for this podcast on my 40th birthday. The next episode will be the official anniversary episode, where I'll do a look back over the past year and give some updates to some of the topics I covered. It's wild to me that it's already been a year of creating this podcast. Thanks so much to all of you listeners who've been on this journey with me. And now, let's talk pubic hair. I come from a hairy family, on my dad's side at least. Electrolysis, waxing, and shaving were common conversation topics among my aunts growing up. My Auntie Brenda, in particular, tells a hair removal tale that I vividly remember from my teen years. So much so that it even makes me gag a little when I think about it. That's your content warning for this story. Back in the 90s, Auntie Brenda found the best waxer in all of Vancouver. And she was cheap. What a score. This esthetician used a hard wax, which means the hot wax goes on your body and then sits there until it dries and hardens before it's ripped off. My aunt went to this woman regularly because she was the best. That was until one fateful day, Auntie Brenda went back into the room after she was done getting waxed and saw the esthetician putting the used, hair-filled wax back into the pot to reheat for the next client. Ugh, so gross. No wonder it was so cheap. Needless to say, Auntie Brenda never went back again. I have been lucky to have found the actual greatest waxer in Vancouver, and I'm going to give her a shout out now. My friend Sarah Maluski is a licensed esthetician who specializes in waxing. Her company is called Loyalty Waxing. Not only is Sarah the fastest, least painful waxer, she's also hilarious and talks a mile a minute. She keeps her clients giggling to distract from the hair being ripped from their bodies. 
Sarah also introduced me to something that no other waxer I've ever known has done. She does not double dip her waxing stick. Think about it. Once the wax and stick have been on your body, it now has your sweat, bacteria, and skin cells on it. By not double dipping, Sarah ensures the most hygienic wax. A far cry from the woman reusing the hair-filled wax that my aunt had to deal with. Removing hair at the so-called bikini line through shaving, waxing, or sugaring has been relatively common in recent history as bathing suits got smaller. But when did the shift towards removing more than just the bikini line begin in North America? A study of Playboy centerfolds from 1953 to 2007 found a clear demarcation of when pubic hair started to disappear. Fun fact, in the 50s and 60s, the pubic region wasn't shown at all in Playboy because pubic hair would have branded it as pornography, which was illegal. In the 70s and 80s, the pubic region was shown and all models had what appeared to be a full bush. It wasn't until the 90s when evidence of pubic hair grooming became more common in Playboy, with about 30% of the centerfold models showing some hair removal. The 90s, if you might remember, was the time of the landing strip, where people in porn would have pubic hair, but it was more removed and trimmed than a regular bikini wax. Bare or mostly bare vulvas didn't appear until the 2000s in Playboy. Some accounts say that Hustler, which was more edgy, was ahead of Playboy in showing partial and fully removed pubic hair, as early as the 1980s. I didn't find an actual study on this, though. So these nude magazines might be one way to document trends, but it's unclear how much they reflect what non-models and non-porn stars were doing. Anecdotally, though, it does seem as though there was a major shift in the early 2000s towards more hair removal for women, and then around 2005 for men. One particularly interesting thing I learned in this pubic hair journey was the origin of what we have now come to call the Brazilian wax. It was brought to New York by the seven Pagilia sisters from Brazil. Jania Pagilia is credited with creating the style of wax back in Brazil in the 70s after seeing a woman in a thong bathing suit with her hair coming out the back. The Seven Sisters had multiple salons in Brazil, so were well-versed in beauty treatments before the middle sister, Jocely, came to New York. Jocely got a job doing nails at a salon in Manhattan. She was so skilled at taking care of people's nails that she soon got high-status clients. After her, each sister followed, and in the early 90s, they opened their own salon in Manhattan. This is when they began doing their signature wax, which was later named the Brazilian. For those who aren't aware, the Brazilian involves removing all hair in your nether regions, essentially from your belly button to your anus. And sometimes there's like a little patch left, but it removes all the hair from the vulva, between your butt cheeks, and up to your belly button if you have a treasure trail. Word of the sisters' Brazilian wax spread, and they became very well-known. According to one interview, they were even contacted by a representative from Playboy magazine who essentially wanted the sisters to stop taking credit for the hairless look. Playboy claimed they had invented the look. But the sisters argued back that it was a cultural tradition in Brazil and they had brought it to America. That wasn't exactly the truth, but they hoped that Playboy would leave them alone about it, which apparently they did. According to several articles I read, what really brought the Brazilian international consciousness in the U.S. was a Sex in the City episode in September of 2000, where Carrie gets an unintentional Brazilian while in L.A. She's quite distraught about it, but Samantha assures her it is normal. 
Carrie then says, I'm so aware of down there now. You know, I feel like I'm nothing but walking sex. Apparently, that's all that was needed to convince many North American women that removing all of your pubic hair was the sexy thing to do. The Sex in the City moment is one origin story for the explosion of the Brazilian and other methods of total hair removal. But there are many other theories. I will get into some of those later in the episode. First, I want to look at some data on how many people are actually removing their pubic hair, because it probably isn't as ubiquitous as it might seem. The first large study on pubic hair grooming patterns in cisgender women was published by Herbenic and colleagues in 2010. This study of over 2,000 American women asked about pubic hair grooming techniques and frequency. Although the Brazilian wax is shorthand for most or all hair removal, the researchers actually found that shaving was much more common than waxing. In their sample, the researchers found that for women under the age of 40, fewer than 20% of them did no grooming at all. The 18 to 24 group reported the most hair removal, with 20% reporting always being hairless and 40% reporting sometimes being hairless. The last 30% said they did partial hair removal. The numbers of people removing hair got lower in each age group, but even in the 50 plus group, there was still about 50% of women reporting at least some degree of hair removal. Pubic hair removal is reported to be most common for white and Asian women in the US. Another large study in the U.S. published in 2016 found that under the age of 44, only about 10% of women reported not grooming their pubic hair at all. For the whole sample of women, 40% said they had never removed all of their hair, and 20% said they regularly did. So more had never removed it all than had removed it all. 92% of the sample reported doing their grooming themselves, mostly trimming and shaving. I actually found that number quite surprising given the prevalence of waxing salons. Of course, since the mid-2000s, the phenomenon of manscaping has also grown in popularity. This includes any hair removal below the neck and often involves pubic hair. A few studies have been done on men's pubic hair removal. Men are much less likely to remove all of their pubic hair, but approximately 50% of male university students in one study reported at least some pubic grooming. In a larger nationally representative sample, 66% of American men reported some pubic hair grooming. A study from Australia found that about 65% of straight men and 80% of gay men reported at least some hair removal. In all studies, gay men report higher incidence of pubic hair removal than straight men. But overall, the majority of men do seem to be doing some grooming to their pubic hair. Motivations for pubic hair removal are wide-ranging. In the recent research, reasons include things like hygiene and cleanliness, aesthetic reasons, protection from STIs, pressure from partners or friends, increased pleasure, or for some people, it's just a habit. Removal is also correlated with being sexually active and engaging in oral sex. And it's less common in monogamous relationships compared to those who are single or dating more than one person. So where did the current pattern of pubic hair removal come from? As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I assumed it was from porn. But pubic hair grooming is not a modern invention. There's evidence of various forms of hair removal across cultures and times. There's evidence of the practice by ancient Greeks, Romans, and Egyptians. Islam has many rules around cleanliness, one of which is the removal of pubic hair. So many Muslims throughout history have engaged in this practice for hygienic purposes. 
Historically, in times when there were high rates of pubic lice or head lice, in many places it was common to shave off pubic hair. Some accounts have high-class people engaging in this behavior and replacing their pubic hair with a merkin, essentially a pubic hair wig. In some places, it was more common to shave hair and use a merkin in sex workers because they were believed to protect against lice and other STIs. Also, merkins could be used by sex workers to cover up sores and other evidence of STIs. Some people have argued that pubic hair removal was common practice in Europe during the Renaissance because of the artwork available from that time period. Other evidence suggests that pubic hair was deemed obscene and could not be portrayed in art, and argue that this is why many of these sculptures and paintings do not include it. Often, when pubic hair was included in art, it was to signal that the subject was scandalous or deviant in some way. The censoring of pubic hair in art is present across many cultures. The famous painting, The Origin of the World by Gustav, is believed to be one of the first paintings that included a full view of adult pubic hair. Showing pubic hair was so rare that rumor has it the art critic John Ruskin in the 1800s left his wife immediately upon seeing her natural pubic hair. In the late 1800s in Europe and America, there was interest in both the cultural elite and in researchers about women's body hair broadly. In the U.S., there was a bit of an obsession with white women's need for hairlessness, although the pubic region was not explicitly mentioned. The American Dermatology Association was founded in 1877, and a focus of their work was a condition called hypertrichosis, or excessive body hair. This was apparently a common diagnosis for women and was used in racist and sexist ways to control women's bodies. After the First World War, women's magazines in the U.S. heavily promoted pale, hairless models and advocated for hair removal. This trend is still seen in modern women's magazines like Cosmopolitan. Leading up to the Second World War, salons promoted X-ray epilation as a way to remove, quote, excessive body hair. Removal of this hair was marketed to many European immigrants as a pathway to whiteness. Women would go in for treatment after treatment by X-ray to remove hair. If you've ever had an X-ray done, you probably remember wearing a lead shield and the X-ray tech hiding out in another room for the protection from radiation. This obviously can't happen if you're exposing yourself to x-rays for the purpose of hair removal, so your body and your face is the target of the x-ray. Constantly exposing themselves to radiation caused long-term damage to many women exposed to these treatments. So although pubic hair was rarely explicitly mentioned in many of the discussions of the need for hairlessness in white American women— there were explicit links between body hair and sexual desire in women, and it was made very clear that hairlessness was the preferred state of a chaste woman. Then came the 70s, a time when pornography exploded, and people saw more bodies and pubic hair than ever before. At the same time, the second wave of the feminist movement was fighting for and gaining rights for women in North America and elsewhere. Scholars have suggested that the hairless aesthetic may have emerged as a backlash to the feminist movement's challenging of female beauty ideals. As more women stood up for their rights and refused to participate in these femininity practices defined by the patriarchy, men desired women they could still have power over. Specifically, they wanted markers of youthfulness and compliance. Youth began to be hypersexualized. This is where we see the emergence of waif-like models like Twiggy and underage actresses like Jodie Foster sexualized on screen. 
There are some who argue that the hairlessness trend is linked to pedophilia and a desire to have sex with younger and younger people. I don't think there's any clear evidence for this outside of the desire for patriarchal men to have dominance over the people they have sex with. Youth and frailty and hairlessness signal obedience and submissiveness. My theory of pornography and hair removal was that it was done so that viewers could see the vulva up close and personal. There are some theories and anecdotal evidence that porn is the originator of the current trends of little to no hair, but nothing concrete that I could find that really pinpointed the onset of the latest wave of pubic grooming. I suspect it was a confluence of multiple things. And of course, there's a long history of policing and controlling women's bodies. As the historical record shows, though, there's evidence of pubic hair removal for a long period of time, well before commercial pornography and advertisements. And currently, there are also many non-Western cultures that practice pubic hair removal. Craig and Gray used cross-cultural data to examine hair removal practices in non-Western cultures, most of which were pre-industrial societies. The most common method of removal in the 26 pre-industrial cultures they studied was plucking, followed by shaving, with almost none of them engaging in waxing. In 11 of these cultures, both men and women engaged in hair removal. The authors of the article argue that because the practice of removal is present in so many cultures not exposed to Western pornography or consumerism, clearly these cannot be the only driving force in pubic hair removal. We also don't know the reasons why most of these cultures engaged in pubic hair removal, although the data available for a few indicated that hygiene and attractiveness were motivations. Although removal may not stem from pornography or ads, it can still be influenced by patriarchal ideals. Of course, media have an influence on many aspects of our culture and our lives, so it's likely that porn and other pop culture trends contribute to the reduction in pubic hair in the modern Western world, even if other factors contribute to it in other cultures. One of the unknowns about pubic hair is the purpose that it serves. From an evolutionary perspective, humans evolved to have significantly less body hair than our ancestors, yet we retained our pubic hair and our armpit hair. The perseverance of dense pubic hair and armpit hair, when so much of our other body hair reduced dramatically over time, is one indication it might be serving a purpose. One fairly obvious purpose is that it's a marker that someone is sexually mature and able to reproduce. Another important one is for scent purposes, because pubic hair can trap our odors. Scent signals are very important for mating in many species, including humans. Vagina-specific explanations include that pubic hair can help reduce friction for the vulva during PVI sex, and that it may help to keep pathogens out of the vagina. There is some evidence that pubic hair removal is linked to higher risk of STIs. A large national study found that STIs contracted from skin-to-skin contact, such as herpes and human papillomavirus, were more common in people who were regular pubic hair removers. The difference between groomers and non-groomers for other STIs was less clear. But this is potential evidence that pubic hair can help create a barrier for pathogens. Alternatively, and additionally, the increased risk could be there because there's cuts or abrasions on the skin that allow easier access for infections. But it could also be that people who remove their pubic hair have higher numbers of partners on average. While this was controlled for in the study, there could be additional partner-related factors not accounted for, like frequency of condom use. 
At this point, the relationship between pubic grooming and STIs is strictly correlational. In addition to STIs, there are also risks of injuries due to pubic hair removal. In the U.S., the National Electronic Injury Surveillance System gathers data on injuries related to consumer products. One study examined the number of pubic hair removal-related injuries that resulted in emergency room visits. Based on the data they had, the researchers estimated that approximately 11,000 Americans per year experience genital grooming-related injuries. The highest percentage was due to the use of razors. Surprisingly, there were none reported from home waxing kits. On the flip side, it's been said pubic lice or crabs might be reducing due to pubic hair removal trends. As I mentioned before, over the centuries, removal of pubic hair has been done to reduce the risk of pubic lice. Media articles in the last couple decades have declared the death of crabs multiple times, so I assumed this was true. But when I looked into it, the only evidence I can find is two small studies from clinics in the UK. I was actually surprised there wasn't more comprehensive data. Those studies in the UK do seem to show a correlation, though. One clinic found a marked decrease in the diagnosis of pubic lice corresponding with the reduction in pubic hair in popular culture. A second clinic showed the same trend, but they also included data on chlamydia and gonorrhea diagnoses, which increased slightly over the same time period. So these small studies provide some evidence that at least pubic lice might be decreasing due to reduced pubic hair. However, the large American sample about STIs that I just talked about generally did not find a relationship between pubic hair grooming and incidence of crabs in their sample of participants. I don't know about you, but I've learned a lot about pubic hair in this episode. I do think it's interesting, though, that historically, pubic hair might have been seen as scandalous and signaling desire, whereas now hairlessness, in North America at least, is the signal of sexual availability. It's fascinating how our perceptions shift over time. I'm curious to see how trends in pubic hair evolve through the rest of my lifetime. I've heard rumors that Big Bush is coming back. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at paleblue.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at DoWeKnowThings, and you can email me at DoWeKnowThings at gmail.com. DoWeKnowThings is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things.